This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This week, the Clarets travel to Villa Park with the aim of showing another newly promoted side just what the realities of Premier League football looks like. This is the Known and Ever podcast. Hi, it's Liam Allen and um, post Aston Villa v Burnley. Very pleased with it. What? would turn out to be a very solid point I think in the first half we looked a, a little bit shady Ashley Barnes was a little bit enthusiastic and that transpired with his yellow card Aston Villa overall I would say were a little bit into the play acting uh, I think that was to their detriment because they played very well through that first half they ran through our midfield like a very dodgy vindaloo I have to say and uh, came out worthy, uh, worthy leaders at the end of the first half. One nil. It could have been two nil. Um, apart from our very good friend VAR. Having said that, the second half, Sean Dyche surprised us all once again by changing things up much earlier than he ever, have, he ever has done, and um, brought Giroud on. It appeared to be a four-three-three, but it could be a, could have been a four-five-one. Anyway, it seemed to work. It seemed to stem the tide a little bit, although overall you would say that Villa probably were um, the uh, better team on the pitch. But we made it. We got a solid solid point. Um, Giro got a goal. Chris Wood got a solid goal. Great performance. Great point. Great journey back home. Good evening, this is Rory Hallinan reporting on the Aston Villa v Burnley game with Liam Hallinan on the train home from what was a very solid point. I thought as a team we'd, we played fantastic in the second half, but much more solid going from 4-3-3. From 4-4-2 looked a little bit weak in the first half. I thought John McGinn was uh, running our midfielders ragged, especially in the middle. Uh, looking through to the second half, uh, went to 4-3-3, McNeil went into centre mid and I thought he looked very comfortable, uh, I thought alongside Hendrick and Westwood, uh, very two very experienced heads in the Premier League nowadays, so, you know, bald head and young shoulders, what can we say? And then Rodriguez looking very sharp, coming off the bench uh, to, to, grab, to grab an equaliser, and then Robbie Brady as well, looking fantastic, uh, good to see him back. Uh, 
So Sean will be delighted with his substitutions, delighted with the character that the team showed uh, on what was a very, very difficult afternoon. I thought Aston Villa played very well in, in large parts of the game, um, run our midfielders ragged, like I said. Uh, so a very good point overall and lots to take forward into the coming weeks. And welcome, welcome, welcome to another edition of the No Nay Never podcast. I am your host, Natalie Bromley, and joining me on the panel this week are regular No Nay Never team members, Tom Whitaker and Richard Steele. Tom, Richard, good evening. Good evening, Natalie. Good evening, Natalie. I'm good, thank you. I'm feeling very buoyant this week after a fantastic away point at Villa Park. We have lots of things to talk about this week after, quite frankly, one of the most entertaining draws I've seen in a long time. We knew it was going to be an open game. We knew it was going to be an entertaining game and it certainly delivered. So there is all sorts to pick from that game. Um, In the second half of this week's show, we are going to look and pause the question... When did keepers stop being keepers? Ooh, exciting. But let's not waste any time and let's go straight on with the match analysis. So, Tom, let's start with you. Obviously, you were at the game as well on Saturday. Um, A very entertaining game and there's been quite a mixed reaction, um, I think, in terms of attitudes to the game um one view held by everybody else and another opinion held by those people predominantly in the Birmingham area um I think a lot of the the press Tom kind of said that it was it was an entertaining game but Burnley just wanted it more do you think that's a fair assessment yeah I think a lot of the question marks that you'd have over Aston Villa this season so far haven't been the way they've been playing or the goals in the team it's been a question over their mentality and their ability to see games out you saw that at Arsenal last week they probably should have won that game they were up against 10 men for a, a lot of it as well and they still somehow contrived to lose it uh, West Ham at home they were playing 10 men for half an hour there and they couldn't make the breakthrough uh, I think they're the team who's dropped most points from winning positions so far this season and I think that was the difference between the teams really in terms of why why we were able to get a point I don't think we played particularly well I think especially in the first half, our midfield was overrun. Grealish and McGinn were, were running the game. Uh, obviously, we made some tweaks at half-time and, and we improved in the second half. We did we did look a lot better prospect. But uh, for me, it, it always felt like Villa had a goal in them. It always felt like they were going to get that second and go 2-1 up. And uh, I think if we were in that position, if we, got, if we scored with 10 minutes to go, there's not a chance you'd see... Uh, the space opening up you, there's not a chance you'd see a big ball into the six yard box taking out two defenders like it did uh, for, for Villa um, I think probably they're just lacking a bit of uh, a bit of smarts a bit of nous a bit of uh, <clears throat> the ability to grind out a result the ability to to win when you're not playing well and that's something that we've got so good at in the last two three years it's something that's really uh that's really come on leaps and bounds, especially when you think about our away results and performances compared to what we were like the first couple of years in the Premier League. We couldn't buy a result away from home. And now we're going to these places. I mean, the last two games, Brighton, we, we didn't play well at all. I didn't think we played that well on Saturday, but we've got two points from uh, from those games. We've avoided defeat against everybody apart from Arsenal and Liverpool this season. So, uh, yeah, I think the the years we've spent in the Premier League and the nows that some of our players have got was uh, was the most telling factor in, in the result on Saturday. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think we talked about this off air before we started recording this week's show. And we talked about a savviness of, of this Burnley side. And perhaps we've got a little bit more, uh, well, a bit of lack of naivety. We understand how the Premier League works and how brutal it can be. And I think in some areas, Villa are displaying characteristics that we did in the seasons we went down. Um, it's interesting that you talk about McGinn, actually, and certainly him and Grealish were the star players. Um, of the game. McGinn himself was quite critical of their ability to see out the game in his post-match interview. And he's touched very much on what you were talking about then, Tom. Um, Although he did start his interview with a bit of shade heading our way and saying that Villa just did not deal with Burnley's long ball. I'm like, oh, really? Okay, fine. Um, But then he did go on to say that Burnley have shown that we can execute the high press and the low block when needed. We won't be going down, uh, that's Burnley, Burnley won't be going down or challenging for Premier League status um, and we know how to get points away from home. So in isolation, that's a good point. That's something that was, was reported on um, a, a Birmingham um, fan site, I think it was. And, and one of the points that McGinn said is that they need to learn how to see games out and they don't manage the games very well and one thing that just made me laugh out about that Richard I'll bring you in to comment on this in that interview McGinn said that look it's not pretty but other teams do it so we need to learn how to boot it away or high kick it into the stands now I found that hilarious given that in his post-match interview the uh, Dean Smith said that um, we we came we got exactly what we came for and we were time wasting from the off. It's like, um, well, your your player, your star player is telling you that that's what you should be doing. Is that the kind of naivety that they're displaying, do you think? Yeah, possibly. Um, I think, obviously, someone like Dean Smith saying that we was time wasting a lot in the game. But I would have to say the, ma- the majority of the wasted time came from their players throwing themselves on the ground. So it's just a little bit of frustration. And I do agree a little bit what he's saying that Burnley got what they come for. I think with about five minutes left, we equalised, went to all, and then we just sat back. We had no real interest in getting a winner. But that's what you've got to do with the Premier League, and that's where we're not as naive. Uh, you know, we, we got a point. Uh, we come from behind twice. I mean, yeah, we did sit sit back um, you know, and managed to grind out a, a point in the end. Um, so I think someone like Aston Villa, they've got a real some really good players, McGinn, uh, Grealish, even Al Ghazi, Trezeguet, who come off the bench. Nice for flair players, but people who's not got a lack of experience in the Premier League of, of knowing how to see games out. And like Tom said, you know, points they've dropped against uh, Arsenal didn't manage to beat uh, West Ham. Um, and will it get to a point where, a bit like Fulham, where you start playing well, but the results don't come and then from their performances drop um, too? But yeah, let's, I think it's one of them. Villa can mourn all they want, but. I think Burnley know they're doing what they're doing best when other teams start to mourn and there's nothing better than seeing other teams whinge. It means we've got under the skin. Yeah, it really does. Um, you're quite right, Richard. I think Villa have now dropped five points from winning positions in the last two games. And actually, more importantly, they failed to beat Bournemouth, West Ham and now us at home, which are games that the, the Villa fans said that they should have won. Um, it, well, obviously out of context, the games that they were hoping to to get bankers of three points from. I'm not sure how they put us in the same bracket as Bournemouth and West Ham. And I don't mean to be a downer here, but West Ham and Bournemouth are both flying. So it's like, I don't think they're guaranteed home wins, but okay, fine. Um, I I think 
turning to what Richard just said then about those villa antics, and maybe it was frustration, Tom, but just it was literally getting ridiculous, the, the play of that Villa players. I mean, uh, I think El Ghazi himself, for this, for our, was it our equaliser? I think it was the first goal that we scored. Rather than just tracking back and trying to help block the shot and stop the chance, he got hit, I think, on his elbow and went flying down, not on his elbow, sorry, on his shoulder, and then went flying down, clutching his face. And it just felt like they were doing that all over the park. Yeah, it was really weird that incident as well because when you look at it back, he seems to duck his head so much into Peter's. It's like it's almost like all he's interested in doing is getting a bit of contact on his face so he can go down and try and stop stop the play. It's really odd when you watch it back. I'm not surprised the ref didn't buy it. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of uh, for all Dean Smith talking about oh, they've come here to for a point, they've come here to waste time. I mean, I didn't think at the start of the game uh, Pope was taking any longer with his goal kicks than Heaton was. Uh, and then, yeah, like you say, as soon as they got the lead, it, they, were, they weren't trying to put through four passes. They were uh, they were killing the game. Uh, I mean, Wesley in the second half. Uh, I mean, I, I haven't seen it back, but at the time, he, he went down under a challenge. He he looked fine. And then all of a sudden, he's poleaxed on the floor. His teammates, he's flopping about. He looks like he's knocked out. And then five seconds later, he's up and running off the pitch. It was uh, stuff like that. He's like... Uh, it was ridiculous, a ridiculous bit of play acting, and there's no no mention of that at all from uh, from Dean Smith. That was uh, that was unsurprising. Uh, yeah, it was it was the kind of the it wasn't the kind of little subtle things you know we'll sometimes do. Uh, my favourite is the goal kick where we'll stand a couple of players in the box and then go, oh no, uh, we wanted to play a short goal kick but we're under pressure, so I guess we're going to have to play it long, you know, and we we'll waste five ten seconds doing that. Those little games we play. That the the sort of time wasting and the uh, and the play acting from Villa wasn't quite that subtle, so maybe that's uh, feeding into the uh, the narrative we were talking about earlier about how they're just lacking that bit of Premier League now. Yeah, exactly. It's those little tricks that they will um, pick up later on. I found it hilarious that in. Um Liverpool's game with Chelsea last weekend I think it was on the I think it was the last game on the Sunday um Liverpool took the lead and I swear to god the commentators were saying there was an 11 minute spell where Liverpool in the first 11 minutes of the second half where Liverpool were displaying the most ridiculous amount of time wasting and sucking the life out of the game that I've ever seen and all of the pundits and the commentators, of course, were all praising them, saying that this is fantastic game management from Liverpool. And I just, I remember tweeting at the time thinking, for those of you who aren't fluent in top six bias, that is also known as anti-football. Because when we do it, it's, oh, that's only Burnley, you know, that's the only thing Burnley came for, they came for a draw. And I'm not being funny, but we scored two goals away from home. McNeil hit the bar in the early first half. Would miss an absolute sitter as well to, to score a second goal. And yet we came for a point. I'm not entirely sure that that's accurate. Um, Richard, I think... In his post-match interview, Deitch was rightly said that you can talk about quality in game and you can talk about the sensational passes and the, the goals and the players that just make you drool when you're watching the game. But actually, sometimes a never-say-die attitude gets you a long way in the game. And we've now come back from losing positions to get points away from home a couple of times already. But I think he's kind of doing himself a disservice here because, of course, one thing that you alluded to earlier on, um, was this incredibly maverick for Deitch anyway decision at half time to change formation, um, possibly um, brought forward by the injury to Jack Cork, but 
we played the second half with four 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 three three even four four three four three three um Richard, that was that was surprising, but very effective. Yeah, it was surprising, uh, but like you said, very effective. I think at times where we are critical of Dyche, myself included, about when he doesn't change it early, when the game's crying out for it. And I, I, I've, I don't know if Cork was injured. I thought it was a tactical sub personally. I think Cork in the last few games, he played okay against Norwich, but even away against Brighton, he's not been at his best, which we can go into that later. So, yeah, he's done something. He's changed it up. He's gone 4-3-3. I know it's a formation he's looked at in pre-season. He said himself in his post-match interview, it's something that he likes and he thinks can be effective. And I thought what was really clever about it, uh, playing that formation, in the first half, you know, a couple of our balls upfield, uh, Mings was winning a lot, of the, a lot of the headers, especially with Engels. So he changed it up. He put Barnes on uh, Gilbert, the right full-back, and then he put Rodriguez on the left full-back, um, whether that was Target or Taylor when he come on injured. And all of a sudden, we, we started winning balls up front. We started winning the physical battle. We were winning our second balls. Yeah, you know, and it worked. I think that's somewhere I've always been with Dice, where sometimes it can be too stubborn. It's great to have a plan A and to know your best team and everything. But in but when it's not going your way, don't be don't be scared to make a change. And I, and I think that's proved it. So hopefully it's in his development as a manager. Um, go back to something else you said when you were asking me the question about a never say die attitude and I think we've definitely got that back this season I think uh, the Villa game and the Brighton away game I think if that's last season and we're under the cosh a little bit I think we would have uh, our heads would have gone down after conceding the first goal and we could have lost 2 or 3-0 instead we've come back well we've shown a lot of fight yeah we've shown quality and we've got back into the game and we've got two hard-earned but deserved points in my opinion yeah, definitely. And they're points that will just keep ticking us along at the end of the season. And, and to get the, the start that we've had so far is incredibly positive. Um, one of the things that we talked about last week, Tom, was a slight frustration on our part that we did have the likes of Matty Vidra and Jay Rodriguez on the bench, who were different kinds of player and who offered something different. And they could be brought on as substitutions when we needed to find a little bit of something extra. Or we needed to try and get something out of a game that was slipping away from us. And we get a bit frustrated that Deitch then or his players didn't then adapt their style of play to reflect those players that have come on and we just essentially put forward the balls that we would put forward to Wood and Barnes, but to a different style of player. Now, given that he brought Jay on this time, but in that change of formation, what an absolute pleasure to see Jay actually get his first goal and for that to pay off. Yeah, it was really brilliant, wasn't it? Brilliant moment. Great header as well. Fantastic finish. Uh, like you say, it, uh, it, it seemed there seemed a bit more coherency about, about what they were doing with uh, with the three up front, you had Wood playing centre forward, dropping in deep, um, spraying it out wide. You had Barnes and uh, Rodriguez, like uh, like Richard said, just trying to bully the fullbacks a little bit, just trying to win those uh, win those initial balls. And uh, you always had the overlap as well when the crosses were coming in. Uh, like if if we'd have been playing Barnes and Wood up front, you wouldn't have had someone flying in at the back post. You can't see uh, Good Munson or Hendrick getting up and winning that header like Rodriguez did. So it made sense from that perspective as well to get someone. On the fullbacks, uh, you know, because Taylor, who Rodriguez beat in the air for that goal, he's not a big lad, so it makes sense to try and isolate him. Uh, it worked really well, yeah. It seemed a bit more coherence. I think uh, Dyche recognised in the first half, like I said, that McGinn and Grealish were were running the game. We weren't getting near enough to them. We weren't closing down enough. So it made sense to uh, to bring McNeil inside. 
I was surprised that he went for Rodriguez actually when he had three wings on the bench to bring on because I thought, well, Hendrick, it made sense to move Hendrick inside, but I didn't expect to see Rodriguez ahead of Lennon, Brady, or Good Munson, but it, it, it obviously works, so full credit. But it's interesting to see Neil playing in midfield as well. Uh, I think from what I've been told, before he was in the first team, he played a lot in midfield for the for the under twenty threes, and he's probably a bit too lightweight to to play in a two. But uh, it's quite interesting to have him as an option to be bringing the ball out from the middle of midfield when uh, when he's in a three and he's got that kind of protection around him. And uh, a lot of the sort of when we've played a three in the past, you've had Defoe playing a bit deeper or um, Hendrik playing at the tip of, of a three. So it's quite interesting to have someone in the middle of midfield who is a bit more of a ball player like McNeil. So if we're in that situation again, it'd be interesting to see how that develops. How did you think he did there? Do you think he looked comfortable? And and I guess he is still quite young as McNeil and he is in his infancy in terms of his Premier League career. Did you think he adapted easily to that change in position? Uh, I think... uh, the, the the first half we just didn't get him on the ball enough so I think he looked a better player in that position in the second half probably just by virtue of having a bit more of the ball but you could tell he could play there uh, he used the ball very intelligently I suppose one what it does detract from when you play him there is the sight of him taking on his full back because I think that was the really exciting thing when he came into the team was that he was a bit more direct than some of our other wingers he'd run at the full back he'd take him on he'd beat him and, he, and he'd sling the cross in and uh, he didn't really get as much of an opportunity to do that, um, but he did. He did uh, put a foot in. He was a bit more kind of uh, aggressive, physical than I expected him to be in that midfield. So uh, probably for now, probably rather see him playing on the wing still. But it's I'd be interested to see. You know, if he had a, a bit of a run of games in that midfield, if we did decide to play a three, I'd be interested to see how we get on. Yeah, one to keep an eye on for sure. Um, Richard, the other, the other, I guess, exciting part of the game was, of course, Chris Wood's equaliser, um, his third goal in two games. And apparently there's no other player in the Premier League who scored more headed goals than Wood since the start of last season, which is a pretty spectacular um, stat. Now, Richard, obviously the goal was fantastic. It was classic Wood. Um, if he gets in that position, he's not going to lose out very often. But what I want to concentrate on was that absolute sublime ball from Matty Lawton. He doesn't half have that in his skill set, does he? Yeah, it was an overall uh, a great goal before I get to the Lawton cross. Um, even before Wood got on, uh, got the header, he just dropped off into midfield a little bit, come and receive the ball. Um, and then he played a good ball out wide to Lawton. And then, yeah, from there it showed real composure. It would have been easy, five minutes to go. The game's a little bit frantic. As soon as he got the ball, just to hit an hopeful cross in a box. But he, he took his time, uh, got a little bit of space with a good bit of footwork and then, yeah, put in a fantastic ball. And, um, you know, it was really good to see Wood there. And, you know, as soon as you as soon as soon you see him editing it, you knew he wasn't going to miss. Um, and at that point, I'll be honest, when, when we went 2-1 down, I thought, oh, that's it. I, I, I don't think we're going to come back from this. But again, we've shown great character, got back into the game and, what a lot of people don't give us credit for is a you know a really good skill set. I reckon if Liverpool scored that goal, say Firmino dropped deep, put it out wide to Alexander Arnold, he puts a great cross in, and Firmino gets back on it. Everybody would be raving about it, but because it's Burnley, obviously we we don't seem to get the same pl- plaudits as what other teams do uh, for the quality players that we do have as well. Yeah, I agree. Although the the classic Burnley fan in me quite, like, quite likes our players to stay under the radar so they don't come in. Um, 
Richard, sticking with you, I guess on the other end of the spectrum, um, all three goals that, that Burnley conceded, the one that was ruled off for offside and the two that stood, were all very disappointing from a defending point of view. Yeah, it's just a little bit too easy, wasn't it? Um, again, down the flanks uh, twice, we got caught out. Uh, going you know, to the two goals that were actually given, I thought Peters was just, first goal was way too slow to get out to his player. I think Ben Mee's got to take a little bit of blame too, as well for the first goal. Um, El Ghazi's just completely ran across the front of him and, you know, he's ball watching a little bit. He's not looking at his man and by the time he's noticed El Ghazi, it's too late. He's got his foot on it. And I actually thought the second goal was worse than Peters because this time he's actually managed to get a little bit tighter to his player and he's just gone past him um, a little bit too easy and, you know, nobody's picked up McGinn at the back post because we're defending the box quite narrow. And I can't, you, you, you can't knock Peters because since he's come into the team, he's given 100% effort um, and he's had some good games, you know, Southampton at home. Um, I thought Brighton away played well and obviously Norwich on Saturday, I thought he had a good game. But I just, one thing that, just Taylor's just a better player than him. It's nothing personal against Peters. It's just Taylor's just simply better. He's quicker, he's younger, he's more athletic, he's better going forward. He links up with McNeil and if he is fully fit, I know Dice likes to say Loyal and we're playing okay, so I can accept it, but surely it can't be long until uh, Taylor gets back in the team um, instead of him. Yeah, probably. I think on Saturday, I think, was probably Peter's weakest performance since he came in the side. Um, Richard, I completely agree with you. He just, he graphs really hard and I can see why Deitch likes him and he's he's very much adopted that Deitch attitude of of working hard, grafting and being there for the team. I don't know what the heck he was thinking he was doing for that first goal. He just puts his arm out and I I kind of look at it and think, what, were you just trying to catch it, mate? Like, what did you think was going to happen if that had hit your arm? (laughs) No, I I just don't understand that. Um, Tom, there was quite a lot of talk in the last England selection about Tyrone Mings being um, selected ahead of both Tarkovsky and me for the England defence. Um, I'm not entirely sure that that was Tarky and me's best performance, but even so, I really thought that they had a much better performance than Tyrone Mings did. I think some of the the Birmingham um, bias reports only gave him about six, six and a half for his performance. Same with Tom Heaton as well. And I, I think, I'm not really sure why this is still happening. I think, like I say, Richard alluded to it earlier on, that our players just don't seem to be getting the credit that they deserve. And fair enough, that you know, when defensively we had an off day, I think they're still better defenders than Tyrone Mings. You might disagree, but that's that's my view. Yeah, I think his his stars risen a lot in a very short space of timings. I mean, he was a, a reserve for Bournemouth. He had probably half a good season last season in the Championship with Aston Villa, and then I think probably because it's Villa and they're you know they're a big a bigger name, uh, he's he's really risen in the consciousness because of that. But I think you know, I don't think he's been particularly good in the Premier League. Uh, I'm thinking of the the goal he gave away against Arsenal last week, where he just nods it straight to Callum James in the six-yard box. I don't know why he was trying to do there. Uh, I think we've spoke before about uh, why probably Ben Mee doesn't get in the England team, and it's because he's not that good on the ball. And you can see that Mings is a player who who wants to get his foot on it and and spray it about. But I think uh, I don't think he's as good with the ball as he thinks he is. There was a point in towards the end of the second half when uh, we were trying to defend the. the 
the point and he he brought it about 20 yards and then just really tamely passed it straight out for a throw in and you think when you've got two three midfielders in front of you you can use the ball um i don't understand why why you'd be doing that um defensively he's nothing special he's a big lad obviously but um, I didn't think he did anywhere near as good a job on, on our centre forwards as uh, as the Brighton centre halves did the other week. Um, he d- he doesn't get you know Wood gets in between him and the other centre half for the for the equaliser the second goal. He gets uh, sucked in a bit for the first goal as well. Like I say, it's, it's Rodriguez on Taylor, and uh, you'd, you'd rather have your centre half standing up to face that cross. So uh, I think when you think how consistent Tarkovsky's been and how long he's been playing in the Premier League now I don't know really what it is that Mings has done that's that's elevated him ahead of Tarkovsky in the pecking order unless it was just the case that Southgate thought I'll I'll give him a call up just to see what he's like because I've not I've not seen much of him or I don't know if Mings perhaps played in the under 21s when Southgate was there because I know he's got a, a bit of a penchant for promoting players that he'd worked with previously in the <laughs> under 21s um, but yeah, I, I think especially on that performance, but on on the career so far, for me, uh, Tarkovsky is a much better a much better prospect for England than than Mings. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's funny you say that about the under twenty ones. I remember attending um, an FA dinner um, just before the World Cup launch, and Southgate was speaking there, and they just announced the well, they were, I think they were about to announce that the final World Cup squad. It was almost like the launch party for the for the World Cup, and. I thought Southgate was a fantastic speaker, but one point that stuck with me and really irritated me was his comment about he will look at players who they've got a file on at George's Park. Um, St. George's Park? George's Park. Um, because the, it's almost like they like say there's this bias towards the players that they know, and if, if they, they haven't got a file on them at, at the ground, then they don't really want to know. And it, it, it's, it's a very difficult situation. And quite frankly, Southgate really hasn't got that massive a pool of players to pick from. Um, I'd like to think that you are right, Tom, that he maybe was just giving Mings a go because he's comfortable with everybody else. He just wants to see how he performs. But I agree on his performance on Saturday. I do not understand him being above Tarkovsky. Um, Funny that you did mention, we are going to talk further on in the show about this insistence on defenders and keepers playing out from the back. You know, it's almost as if we plan these things. Um, so we'll come back to that point later. Um, final point from you, Richard. Um, we, we can't talk about this game without mentioning our boy, Tom. Um, how do you think he performed on Saturday? I think he'll be disappointed with the goals he conceded against us. Yeah, it's still strange uh, seeing him in that Villa shirt and especially playing against him. Um, and then i seen... When I watched it back, there was uh, him and uh, Ashley Barnes was giving him a little bit of stick in the tunnel before the game and trying to wind him up. And Heaton was doing his best, um, you know, to ignore it. Um, but yeah, I think the first goal, I think that's a bit more difficult one. But but I think the second goal for him, you know, it's a great cross, but at the same time, you know, Woods headed it from inside the six yard box and. I think that's one of Heaton's uh, weaknesses is coming out for crosses. You know, I think literally the last thing, you know, the last action of the game was um, they put a free kick into the box and Pope come about eight yards out and just claimed it. And I think that's what you do get from Pope that you don't get with Heaton. Um, but yeah, you know what? I just, you know, he's an absolute, I know the word legend gets banded about a lot, but he is a Burnley legend. What he's done for the club has been 
um, you know, absolutely outstanding. And I just wish him all the best of luck. Um, but I'm glad he conceded two against us on Saturday. And when we play him at Turf Moor, I hope he concedes five. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that took a turn. I wasn't expecting, Richard. Um, all right, well, let's... <laughs> Let's, you two are turning into masters of giving me the surprise shock ending. Well, that's what I think. It... Oh, no, it's only a little bit of joking, so I make a bit of humour. I like it. I like it. Uh, it keeps me on my toes. Um, okay, let's finish off the Villa analysis then. Um, Tom, man of the match? Uh, it's quite a difficult one this week, I think. Uh, I don't think anyone was outstanding, mm. but I don't think anyone was particularly bad. Uh, probably if you push me, I would say just because of the impact that he had coming on and the fact that he's got his first goal, I'd say Rodriguez. It's more of a sentimental one though, that. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Richard, your man of the match? Yeah, I echo Tom's views. Uh, nobody really stood out. Um, Lawton deserves a shout to thought he put a, a good shift in. Nearly didn't really make a mistake and obviously great assist for the goal. Um, I think I'm going to give it to Tarki again. I think Even though we conceded two goals, I don't think any of them were his fault. And I just think he looks so assured at the moment. I really do think he's on top of his game. So I'm going to give it to Tarki. Excellent. Well, it's going to be a complete uh, three. Well, <laughs> it's just going to be three completely different players this week because I was actually going to give it to Lawton, who I thought Richard was going to give it to then. Um, his, his overall play, I didn't think he'd make that many errors. I think some of the defensive errors for the goal weren't necessarily his fault and that cross was just a thing of beauty. So whilst I very nearly went for Jay, again, for the sentimental reasons, my man of the match is Matt Lawton. <laughs> Okay, so we start this week's second half of the show with the topic of the week, which was given to us on a plate, and there is absolutely no pun intended there whatsoever, because we are begging the question this week, when did keepers stop being keepers? Now, let me elaborate on this. We are told that the main reason that Pickford is the England number one keeper is because of his distribution. Southgate likes him to play out from the back. That's the style that England have been playing. We're also talking, we're also told, sorry, that Ben Mee has not been called up from England um, side due to his lack of ball playability, essentially. And I know that's something that Tom alluded to before the break. Um, now, the problem with this, it's very trendy this season, and, and it's almost like teams are too scared just to clear the ball or keepers to do what they're supposed to do and just catch the ball. Um, and playing out from the back is all good and well, and it's all very entertaining. It's spectacular to watch when it's done right, unless you don't have the skills to do it. Now, this week, there were four quite obvious examples of when this goes spectacularly wrong. Um, Tom, I'll start with you. The clear example of, of the headline is is Hugo Lloris at the Spurs game. Um, now, he should be able to do it. He's a very, very good keeper. But he just had a ridiculously sloppy piece of defending. He tried to do the cry of turn, which just really didn't work. Danny Ings showed absolutely no mercy, took it off him and equalised for Saints. Now, I know you've got some quite strong opinions on this. Talk our listeners through where you stand on this playing out the back strategy. Yeah, uh, I'm a I'm a bit of a traditionalist when it comes to my football. I like my goalkeepers to keep the ball out the net. I like my defenders to tackle and put it in the stand. I like my midfielders to play and I like my strikers to score. Um, so I'll preface it by saying, I'll add the caveat that I think if you've got the players to do it and you can coach them, and I don't think there's many players in the world who 
or many teams in the world who've got enough players to do it. And I don't think there's many coaches who are good enough to to really do it. But when it works, I think it's pretty unstoppable. You look at Man City, they've got a keeper who is not only good at being a keeper, but he is good at his feet as well. He can play midfield for us, I reckon, Edison. Uh, you've got defenders, some defenders anyway, who, who are good at playing out from the back. They've got that kind of aura about them where teams perhaps don't are too scared to press them because of what's behind them. Um, and when it all works like that, they're fantastic to watch and they're, they're pretty much unbeatable. So I'm not saying that it's not a tactic that, that doesn't work and I'm not saying that you know, it's. Uh, I don't understand why anybody's doing it, but I think uh, what the the word you used earlier was that it's trendy, and I think that's uh, for quite a few of the teams that have seen trying to do it this year. I think that's that's what it comes down to. I mean, when Brighton announced that they'd appointed Potter, I thought that's going to play well for us because trying to to get that that team to to start playing that 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 style of football. I mean, Dan Byrne. Uh, Lewis Dunk, they're not. These aren't ball playing centre halves. Aaron Webster, we saw him for Brighton give Chelsea a goal uh, because he didn't know what to do with the ball in the penalty area. Now, when they played us, uh, there was a bit less of that, and and they looked like three really good centre halves. They looked, they were winning headers, they were winning tackles. That's what they're good at. And me, uh, I, I just think, why don't they stick to what they're good at? Why, why, why not do that? Is it worth? I mean, I don't know how many goals Brighton have scored this season where they've, they've played 20, 30 passes out from the back and put it in, in the back of the net. I know they've won one game all season. That was against Watford. So I'm guessing it's not that many. Um, is the risk reward, is it really there for teams like Brighton? Is it there for teams like Norwich? We saw them trying to play out from the back and, and give up two goals against us because they couldn't get out there enough for the first 10, 15 minutes. The game's over as a contest. I mean, uh, Larice, you've seen him in the past. Uh, I think he, he did something similar in the World Cup final, trying to trying to play with his feet on the line and, and give up a goal being tackled. I mean, if 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 the, the sort of embarrassment of doing that in the World Cup final wasn't enough to to, to try and get him out of of the habit, then then nothing will. So I think, yeah, what it is is it's uh, uh, it, if like I say, if you've got a team like Man City, if you if you can play it, then it's fantastic. If you haven't got the players to do it, if you're Brighton, if you're Norwich, if you've got you know a ten five ten million pound centre half that you've got in from the from the Championship, there's nothing wrong sometimes with just saying, "Look, I'm a centre half. I've won the ball off this uh, off this centre forward, and I've got a midfielder in front of me who's a decent player. I'm going to let him have the ball." So, like I said with Mings earlier, he's run, dribbling twenty yards and, and passing it straight out for a throw in. What's wrong with just doing the tidy stuff? Get the ball. And give it to Grealish, give it to McGinn, give it to Nakamba, some midfielders who, who are in the team to to spread the ball around, to to play with the ball at the feet. Uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm glad that you know a lot of teams sort of slag off the way we play and, uh, and the fact that we're a bit direct and that sort of thing. But uh, me myself, I'd much rather watch that than than the alternative. Well, there you go. That is the argument against playing out from the back. I think the Brighton example, um, Adam Webster had an absolute nightmare. That's that's an obvious one. And I think Brighton was the example that I was going to give to you about when it goes disastrously wrong, when you just don't have the players to do it. I'm not sure what... And it's not just that. I don't think the Brighton keeper, who, forgive me his name, I, I forget, but Webster... He didn't get any direction off his keeper and he was trying to turn the ball and he didn't know what to do with it. And it's not the keeper didn't take responsibility for it either. And and when you do that against sides like Chelsea, they are going to punish you. 
Um, but it isn't just the sides like Brighton. I mean, Pickford is very divisive in terms of, of his keeping abilities at the moment, but he was at it again on uh, at the weekend as well. He escaped conceding a goal very late on as he just let Bernard Silva catch him out and, and he that very nearly resulted in a goal. I remember watching the game and Gary Neville, who was commentating, was going absolutely mental because he was laughing about it. And it's, it is it is frustrating when you see your players just ignore the basics. Now, Richard, you quite, you, you, I think when we talked about this off air, you're quite a fan of this. Um, and I'm assuming you're going to caveat that from uh, as in when it's done properly. But you also had some particular sympathy for the Sheffield United keep. I think Dean Henderson spilled it between his legs and into the goal against Liverpool at the weekend. And, and even Chris Wilder came out and said he has to do better there. Um, and again, it's, that isn't necessarily, well, it isn't playing out from the back. But again, it's, it's an example of, they're trying to concentrate on doing these things and forgetting how to do the basics well. And, and Henderson should have just been able to scoop that ball up and, what, he's just suddenly forgotten how to catch. But you had some sympathy for him for that. Um, I'll go back to your first point about whether I'm a fan of it or not. I won't say I'm a, I'm a fan of it, but I think there's a time and a place for it. I just think you've got to be sensible with it. I think Lloris doing Cruyff turns on his own line. I, I don't understand the sense of that. Arsenal, they conceded a goal against Watford when they're 2-0 up. That's just plain silly. But on the other hand, is there, you know, we, we can go on about Norwich saying, oh, they shouldn't do it. But at, at the end of the day, if they've got Puky up front on his own, what's the point of them just launching it? Because the ball's just going to come back to him anyway. So I think there's a time and a place for it. And yeah, I, you know, sometimes I wish we would be a little bit more brave on the ball. They're just hoofing it all the time and try and pass it into midfield a little bit more, get caught up and Westwood off on the ball and try and get our ball retention a little bit better. But I just think it's about being sensible when to use it or not. I think teams have an over-insistence on just using it all the time, no matter what, even if you've got central defenders that are marked in the penalty area, they'll still pass it out, which I don't really see the sense in that. Um, going back to your Henderson one, I don't want to sound like I'm being um, harsh or anything, Natalie, but... I don't really see what relevance Henderson letting one through his legs to playing out from the back is. I don't see any correlation there. I don't really rem- rem- remember Sheffield United playing intricate little passes on the six-yard box to each other, which would then... No, it, it was a it was a separate point that we said, Richard. We were saying, I think I said it, it wasn't to do with playing out from the back. It was it was more to do with the question when do keepers stop being keepers and forgetting to do the basics well. Uh, I think it's just one of them. He's a young lad who's made a mistake, you know, in a in a high pressure game, and keepers going back to, you know, every single keeper's made mistakes no matter what. Um, either it's been in even like you know Peter Smike or some of the gaffs. He made probably the greatest ever Premier League goalkeeper. So, But then, you know, a couple of minutes later, he made a great save from Salah. Um, so, yeah, I felt a bit sorry for Henderson in that respect. I thought, like, Lloris' mistake or his Cruyff turning on his own box was a, you know, a far worse mistake than what Henderson did, even though it, it wasn't yeah, a good one. Um, and Wilder's right. He has got to concentrate more. But I think he's a young lad who, and I think he'll become, a you know, a, a real top keeper. But, Going back to what you said about Pickford, it's just getting to the point where he's almost getting a little bit of uh, people are laughing at him now because mm. it's, it's just becoming a theme. If you ask me whether this is right or wrong or whether we're biased, if you ask me who I'd rather have in goal for Burnley, Pickford or Pope, there'd be absolutely no comparison. And I think going into the Euros next summer, I'd still feel more confident if Pope was our keeper compared to Pickford. 
Yeah, I completely agree with that. I, I, I don't rate Pickford at all. And it's just, like you say, though, it's, it is very difficult. And I'm glad you raised the point there, Richard, about the saves that the young Henderson made after um, after his, his, his spooler, I guess, into, into the net. Because the, the problem is, is that when you have this trend going on about keepers and playing out and the mistakes and the question marks about whether they're forgetting to do the basics well. What then happens where you've got a very talented young keeper like the Chef United keeper who has made a mistake that hundreds of other keepers have made, but that then becomes the headline. If you, if you, When I was looking at the news today, it was all about his mistake and what Wilde said to him and, and how he's got to start concentrating. But you couldn't see anywhere any of the praise for the other really good saves. And I think one you mentioned, Richard, was the one, one-on-one one save that he made, which was a really, really good save, which will give him a lot of confidence. So we're actually in danger, and I think the Pickford problem is one of these, that we're in danger of really concentrating and highlighting on on this sensational news um, outlet that we have 24-7. And that becomes the narrative of the game rather than um, concentrating on what they're doing well. And then when you've got the likes of Lloris and Pickford, high-profile top six keepers doing it, it just filters down. And I guess teams outside the top six who don't have the big star players, they almost get tarred with the same brush. Um just sticking with you, Richard, before we move on, I think Tom mentioned about he wishes sometimes that we did. Actually, I can't forgive me. I can't remember which one of you said it, but one of you said that you wish sometimes that Burnley played out from it a little bit more. I think we used to do that a bit with Heaton and certainly not under pressure. But I felt when we had Heaton in nets that we did used to play it around the back five more than we maybe do with Pope in the nets. Um, yeah, a little bit. Me, my my issue is I don't want us just to pass it around the back five. You know, Tarky to me, to Lowton, back to Tarky to me. I, I I don't see the point of that. I I want us to try if we can. You know, to mix up our game a little bit more and our midfielders be a little bit braver. Um, and get on the ball and, and play it from there rather than just hitting it long over and over and over again. We did it against Brighton when all you know they basically played four centre halves in a you know in a in a defensive shape and we won absolutely nothing up front. So that's more what I was alluding to, um, is in playing out from the back, playing it in from the back into midfield rather than just passing it about all the time. And remember, Tom made a point. I think the last podcast I did with him. That's when we had the four. He, he was somebody who, who could do that. Um, but, you know, maybe we haven't got the players, you know, Cork and Westwood. Are, maybe they're not quite up to that level uh, to, to be able to play, um, you know, get the ball under pressure and then lay it off. I would just say that's the only the one thing that I would that this team can improve on, in my opinion, is sometimes we just give a lot of possession away in midfield and I think we could be a little bit more brave in midfield. But that's kind of a... Another little issue from the from the passing it about between the goalie. Okay, well, Tom, we'll come back to you then just to finish off this section. Um, we obviously saw Pope versus Heaton at the game on Saturday. Two players who were both fighting for the England jersey, but from the same club not so long ago. Um, concentration on Pope because he's ours now. I think feel like he's got more chance of breaking into that number one slot than maybe Heaton has. I don't know if it's an age thing. I don't know if Tom's had his chance, but I feel out of the two of them, Pope's got the stronger chance. What do you think Pope has to do to take that number one jersey off Pickford? Uh, you know, I agree with you, first of all, that I think Pope over, over Heaton, and I think probably just because of his age, I think that's probably the reason we've we've hung on to Pope and like Heaton because of, of his age as well. In terms of what he has to do to, to get the England shirt, 
uh, I think it's quite it's quite difficult to see it happening personally. I think there's probably only probably the only scenario you can see where it'll get a decent chance is if England qualify from the group with a few games to spell, which they look like they're going to do. And Southgate looks to experiment with the keepers um, to maybe give him two or three games and see what he's like. But I think, um, I think to, to be fair, I think we spoke about this a, a few weeks ago. I do, I do think that Pickford, when he's played for England, hasn't really let us down. And, and he chucks a few in for Everton and he looks quite erratic playing for Everton. But I don't think he's ever had that bad of a game in an England shirt. So, I think really what Pick, what Pope is relying on if he wants to get in the team is probably th- probably three things I would say. I'd probably say one, Pickford to make a few more clangers for for Everton to the point where people are questioning whether his 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 form is good enough to be playing for England. Two, um, to to take the chance if he does get it. So if he does play in some friendlies to to impress to keep clean sheets, and three is to improve his kicking. Uh, because to be fair, uh, I know I've been speaking about. I'm not a big fan of playing out from the back, but uh, you don't necessarily want to see every every uh, kick your keeper takes go out for a throw either. And he's a little bit uh, Brian Jensen in that regard. I think Pope is kicking. It's not just that it's it's uh, it's not on the level of Pickford. I think it is actually quite bad. So probably a bit of work on the training ground, improving that that distribution as well would uh, wouldn't go amiss. Good stuff. Well, that is all we have time for this week. We have looked at a fantastic point away at Villa Park and we have analysed the keeper headlines in the Premier League trend. Um, My thanks as ever go to two fantastic panellists, to Tom and to Richard, who've worked very hard this week and also obviously had to deliver some quite uh, bespoke analysis there of our talking point of the week. Tom, Richard, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to have you both on. Yeah, always a pleasure to be on. Thanks very much. Cheers, Natalie. Always enjoy coming on. Good, good. Um, We also need to um, thank producer Matt for editing and publishing our podcast and knitting it all together. Um, And to band Joyce for providing us with our music. But my final thanks go to you, the listener, for downloading and listening to this week's podcast. Your support is very much appreciated and we would not be here without you. We will be back on Friday, myself and Statman Dave, for the preview show where we'll be looking at Everton away, Everton at home. Everton. I don't know where we're playing, but we'll be looking at it anyway. You'll find out on the preview show. Um, And then the main show will be back next Tuesday to analyse that result and see what wonderful talking point the fantastic Premier League has raised for us next week. I've been Natalie Bromley. This has been the None and Ever podcast. Until next time. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.